This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Uh, welcome to Einstein and Go-Go, everybody. It is a fabulous Sunday morning, and if you haven't noticed, Melbourne's gone wild. Apparently, it's a car race on. So if you're out there and you're struggling with the traffic, you know, it can, uh, it can happen. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Cromo is in the house. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm fine, and all recovered from my overseas travels. <laughs> yes. <you are. laughs> yeah, people who have been following him on Twitter will know he's been to Vancouver. Think, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, in the round. I was finding out all about how alcohol in pregnancy can harm the unborn child. Yeah. Fantastic, and I'll talk about that at another time. And Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Uh, I am well. Uh, semester started. I've uh, already had a chance to uh, tell bad jokes in lecture and answer a student's <laughs> phone when it often went off in lecture. I live for that. That is so much fun. As the lecturer, to take a message for the student. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's... Um, it's yeah, but, uh, I kind of like that, actually. <laughs> I guess it's going to happen every now and then with 300 students in the class, but um, yeah. Yeah, the, the challenge is to run up into the audience to get it before... Uh, yeah. And a big hello to Christopher Pine, if you're listening. <laughs> I almost swore. Um, <laughs> we'll get on to that. Let's chat about some science. So, uh, Dr. Jeff, or Jeff, Dr. Cromo, because I, I, I call you Jeff. Whatever. Now, you're clean, clean shaven, though, I have to I'm, say. Uh, I'm clean shaven. I've got a fuzzy head at the moment um, because I'm um, supporting people with blood cancer. Mm. Uh, basically, there are every single day, there's 31 people in Australia diagnosed with a blood cancer such as leukemia and lymphoma. And once a week, the Leukemia Foundation organizes. Once a week, once a, a year, the Leukemia Foundation organizes the uh, the world's greatest shave for two reasons. One, so you can show your solidarity um, by shaving your head for those um, children and adults affected by leukemia and other cancers that have had radiation chemotherapy to make their hair f- cause their hair to fall out. Um, and if you really want to take part, you can actually shave, shave your head, or if not, you can donate. So uh, I've done it for the last couple of years and enjoyed doing it and enjoyed the solidarity of seeing other people, especially those ladies in the audience who, who obviously go through a lot more than I have well, shaving off. For you, it's a slight upgrade, yeah, isn't it? a slight it? upgrade so, and the no- usual number one on the side and number three yeah, yeah. on the top. Um, so if you want to, if, so it's fine if you find out more through the World's Greatest Shave. If you want to give money, uh, then just Google World's Greatest Shave Dr. Cromo yeah. and you should come up across my profile. The interesting thing is that uh, I was down in Queenscliff, and there was a there was a guy selling that had made his, made these necklaces or necklaces, as you say here, um, in the theme of the, the solar system. Oh, so I yeah, got him yeah, to give yeah. me. He gave. I bought one, and he gave me one. So anyone who sponsors me, uh, any uh, nerds or especially nerdettes out there um, who would like one, I've got one to give away. Yep. For those who sponsor me a lot. Well, I have to say, I've sponsored you for, for two reasons. One is because I think it's a fabulous um, thing that we are funding. And, and, you know, the more money, the better into some of these blood cancers. Hopefully get them sorted out, especially in the kids. Second is I'm afraid to shave my own head because I'm fearful <laughs> that I may not have a good-shaped head. And you've got a good-shaped head. So, you, you know... Oh, you get nobles. What, what you see... You, you just never know. You see all those little, uh, what do you call it, phrenology nobles on, um, and that you never, yeah. you, you never 
than you were there, and you're thinking, have I, I got a malformed head or what? Yeah. Well, yeah. And Dr. Wait. Ray's looking at me like, your head's already half shaved. Well, why, why are you... <laughs> no, no, I, I kind of look at it going, you know, the headphones do sit kind of odd on your head. Maybe there's something in this. <laughs> well, I, I have taken to cutting my own hair these days. I, I just, I got to the point wow. where, well, because I've got less hair, yeah. you know, people who know me will know I've got less hair than I used to have. And the price is going up oh, with is. my hairdresser. I think it should be going down. You're only doing half the job. So, but I must say those those kind kind hairdressers at the Royal Children's Hospital yep. did it for me. They oh, were, yeah, they, yeah, free of yeah. charge. There's a yeah, it's just, they're just amazing people. <laughs> and they, 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 I'm they shave they the, didn't pay you. They, they shave the kids' hair for free as well. Yeah, so they're very fabulous. nice people. Yep, that's no, great to have them there. All right, so if you want to support a Dr. Cromo, go to uh, World's Greatest Shave and search for Dr. Just put in world gre- World's Greatest Shave, Dr. Cromo, or just look at my Twitter feed, Dr. Cromo. Yep, fabulous. We'll live, we'll, we will tweet that as well, and yep. we'll make sure that people can get onto it. That's good stuff. Now, uh, some science? News, science. Well, we, we had um, head transplants the other week. Yeah. Um, although, did you actually... Uh, I've, got, I've got a, a bone to pick with this. Isn't it a body transplant? Because you don't, your body doesn't decide I want a new head. Your head decides I want a new body. I, I, I think I should yeah. write. Maybe yeah. I'll get a paper in uh, Nature about that. You know, actually, I think it's, you're on to a good thing there. It is a body pr- transplant. Yeah. Absolutely. So talking of transplants, um, in the news this morning uh, on my Facebook feed was the, penis, uh, the first penis tra- transplant. Now, you would think this would have happened some time before. Leave, um, leave block your ears. But <laughs> it's all down to a very serious problem in some countries, specifically this one was South Africa. There was a lot of traditional um, circumcisions. And in fact, there's circumcisions and then there's genital mutilation. Mm. This is genital mutilation, right. which can happen to both sexes, serious in both sexes. But, and it's quite, it, circumcision is considered normal in, some, in, in many countries and therapeutic and preventative. However, this is different. Mm. And... It went wrong, as it does in many, many occasions. And people apparently have pain throughout their lives. But So that, that prompted a local surgeon in South Africa to do the world's first penis transplant. So in those, it may to some be a trivial matter, but to others, I guess it's important. Um, so it's a small, again, a, a small breakthrough um, hmm. regard, regarding transplant technology. I guess there's an entire joke there too, isn't it, when some men are accused of thinking with their you-know-what, in which case it is a body transplant. Ah, yes, there you go. <laughs> um, and the other, the other thing that I quite like, and I shall read out to you, the NHMRC statement on homeopathy. Oh, yeah. Which was a breath of fresh air this week. Um, based on the assessment of evidence of effectiveness of homeopathy, NHMRC, the NHMRC, the National... National Health and Medical Research Council concludes that there are no health conditions for which there is reliable evidence that homeopathy is effective. Homeopathy should not be used to treat health conditions that are chronic, serious, or could become serious. People who choose homeopathy may put their health at risk if they reject or delay treatments for which there is good evidence for safety and effectiveness. People who are considering whether to use homeopathy should first get advice from a registered health practitioner. Those who use homeopathy should tell their health practitioner and should keep taking any prescribed treatments. Mm-hmm. The NHMRC expects that the Australian public will be offered treatments and therapies based on the best available documented evidence. 
which I think is a great go-to for those considering and those currently taking homeopathy. It can be very dangerous. Mm. Well, it's one of those areas where it's, it's interesting. We don't promote um, scientific evidence-based medicine in the same way that some of these areas are promoted. And we've seen a similar thing with the anti-vaccination yeah. vaccination movement where you know a few very loud voices have started to overtake what is, you know, hundred years of, of, of very solid research and we just have to be very careful that if you are going to reject or not use traditional sorry i shouldn't use the word traditional existing research-based medical responses to certain conditions in light of what someone else says they can do by hovering their hands above your body be careful mm. because you are basically putting yourself at risk but also with with the anti-vaccination you're putting yourself and just about every other body at risk yeah. especially in say children's playgroups etc people are being banned now from children's playgroups if they haven't been vaccinated and rightly so mm. who wants to spread these diseases that we thought were just about gone uh, and in some communities they're coming back because yeah. of an- the people haven't vaccinated it's extraordinary um so there we go a good a good uh, health message uh, thank you jeff i think we should make sure that that's um that's something we push each week and uh, once again hello to christopher pine um <laughs> sorry is anyone you guys seen the film mosquito coast uh yep for those so. for those who know yeah. that film well you'll know what i mean when i say the christopher pine have a nice day <laughs> Dr. Ray, what do you go for us? So I, I haven't seen Mosquito Coast, and I, and I believe this was discussed last week, but it, it's kind of timely to, to, to your comments. So um, it's always exciting when Australian science has a high-profile recognition of an achievement, <laughs> uh, particularly when, when you see uh, very innovative science end up in journals like Nature or Science, where yeah. Australia is really showcased on an international level. Well, Australian science made it into Nature this week. Yay! Excellent. That's fabulous. Uh, and, and they did it in the seven days news and brief. Oh, yeah. And this is yep. a summary talking about things administrative and achievement-wise that go on around the world globally. Mm. There's a mm. great little article on there about a plane that's going to try to go around the world all on solar power. Yep. There's something about the European Brain Project. Um, there's a, another thing about uh, the dawn arrival. I mean, really big things of mm. note. Sometimes administrative. There was one about animal research uh, protests going on in Europe. But Australian science made it in there for not funding their scientific infrastructure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so go us. Um, <laughs> that's not kind of what we want to get uh, known for. Uh, yeah. that, that we've actually made it big time that our uh, inability to support the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Scheme, uh, which costs $150 million for a year's worth of funding. We're talking about 27 facilities, 1,700 people's jobs. And we're talking about the facility, Dr. Shane, mm. that has helped do things like help develop, deliver almost into the commercialized point of the nano patches, which can deliver vaccines without yep. both pain or need, require refrigeration. Uh, we're talking about marine models and data that helped the MH370 search, weather technology prediction for um, recent uh, cyclones in Northern Territory and Queensland, as well as simply helping Australian industry. There's examples of these facilities helping, example, Blue Scope Steel in refining their cast strip steel making process. And so it, it impacts not just Australian universities, but Australian industry as well. Mm. And, and, and as it's even alluded to in the nature, it's effectively being held hostage over a political 
drive for the education reforms. Yeah, at least tell me though, Dr. Ray, that the um, this hundred and fifty million dollars is being spent to buy some more bulldozers or something to dig shit up. I mean, <laughs> is that all we do in this uh-huh. country? I mean, honestly, it, it's it's very problematic that um, this link has been made between the education reforms and these research uh, infrastructure projects and, and existing facilities because. What a lot of people probably aren't aware of is that at the moment, research is so poorly funded in this country that a very large amount of the funding that goes towards research is actually generated by university degrees sold to international students. And that's the money that actually cross-subsidises or you know is, is used to fund the real cost of research in most of our universities. Now, so there's already this inappropriate link that shouldn't be happening, and this is going further again and extending that link outside of the university campuses to these other infrastructure facilities, which is just truly disgusting. Well, and it's these 27 facilities, I think the estimates are 30,000 different researchers yeah, use yeah, them. Yeah. You're talking about grinding science to a halt across the I use, country. I use them. I've just, just about got a grant. I'm just about to... Uh, that this is the uh, the bioplatforms Australia. You know, mm. I I, mm. I I want to biobank my samples. Right. And I spoke to someone last year in Sydney, uh, you know, setting up the bio, the national initi- initiative. And he told me at the time, I'm not quite sure about my future, but let's see. Contact me again in a year. But I'm sure if I send an email now, it'll probably be be bounced back. So that's essential mm. to my work. Where do I go? Well, look, let's hope there is a groundswell of public uh, disgust over this particular issue and and this idea of pairing policy together. So, so, you know, pass this or we'll do this to everyone is really not the way to go. And I have to say it's time that science really took the gloves off and started being far more outspoken. There are a lot of scientists in this country. This country has got a great history of science innovation and, and, and the impact we have on the world is quite profound. And it's time we took the gloves off and yeah. started fighting this um, barefisted as opposed to the subtle comments that often come out. I yeah. Well, it already punches above its weight, uh, mm. person person per person, discovery per person. It's right at the top of the class. Yeah. But as you say, we've got to... We've got to Use those fists for. Uh, look, I'm all for. I'm all for governments well. needing reasons to do this, <laughs> reasons to fund it. How about this country will be a backwater, desolate piece of crap if yep. we don't invest in a knowledge economy over the next uh, decade or so? So you know. By the way, China's so, uh, solar power is uh, is will generate more electricity than the whole of the the U.S. traditional. Um, power generating. Oh, that's cool. And Australia could do the same thing. Yep. Now, uh, let's get a beat. Anyone? A beat? You want, you want something to uh, get people... Sorry, folks, if you're having your breakfast and, uh, you know, uh, there, is some, there is some good, cool stuff coming out, though. I mean, the solar system is just going berserk at the moment with new information. It's very exciting. Um, China, of course, has its um, uh, Jade Rabbit uh, uh, um, rover on Mars, which is finding out ah. some really interesting things about uh, multiple... They're looking at multiple times when there was... Um, subservice activity and so forth and they've found a lot of stuff that wasn't there before which is really cool so they're um it's interesting how china's really ramping up their um their space program it's fantastic stuff but this week um something i thought was just amazing you know there's always been even from the days of 2010 you know the book and and so forth this interest in europa one of jupiter's moons as a possible location Mm. for for life outside of uh the earth and it may well be, actually, that Europa is falling well and truly into possibly third place right. as where we would look first for Earth in the solar system, which is a big surprise to, to a lot of people. But um, Ganymede, which is, I don't know if you're aware of this moon, is um, the largest um, moon in the solar system. Did you know that, guys? 
Uh, no, nope. just I know it was a moon. <laughs> I'm being educated, but anyway, I, I do now. I'm going to tweet the, that. It's one of the Jupiter's moons, but it's a, it's a big sucker, and um, you know because our moon's a big sucker. And anyway, <laughs> gravitational wise, <laughs> the, the Hubble Space Telescope has been looking at Ganymede lately and doing something that's absolutely fascinating. So, as you know, you get the aurora around the Earth. This is a, the pattern of light that you get at the North and South Pole, oh, yeah. and that's a, that's a location where uh, the Sun's energetic particles are sort of uh, interacting with the magnetic fields and they're coming close enough to, to us that we can see this, um, this light show, which is quite extraordinary. Now, when you, um, when you go elsewhere in the solar system, you also see these auroras around any, any planet or moon that has a magnetic field. Ah. So now magnetic field, of course, generally will mean that there is some molten trans, um, transmission of, of materials inside the, or near the ah. core of that planet, which is you know revolving around and creating a magnetic field. And, and, it, and in our case, it protects us. I mean, you know, without it, the life on Earth would probably not exist. So we're very lucky. But uh, Ganymede has um, this same source of um, thing going on, and the auroras are very interesting. Now, one of the things that you can you can also do with an aurora, and this will sound amazing, is you can detect, uh, you can use the aurora or pictures of it to detect whether or not a planetary body or a moon has a subsurface salty ocean. Wow. No way. Yes. Now, wow. you think about this. So salt, um, you know, t- t- salty water does, um, transmits um, electricity just like a, a battery does. And ah. so if you have this moving around, this planetary body, um, it can, as, as you would expect, be able to create a magnetic field. Wow. And so that magnetic field has an impact on the aurora or, and how well it, it works or, you know, how much of it you see. And so what um, astronomers have done over the last uh, quite a period is um, look at the aurora that you see on Ganymede and determine that um, there is, lo and behold, a subsurface, quite substantial, um, salty ocean oh. underneath. Now, this is all inferred, but it's something that's... Um, it's sort of a follow-up, if you like, from um, decades ago now when the Galileo spacecraft um, did some flybys of Ganymede, and, and they, they were really short because it wasn't its primary mission. They only lasted about 20 minutes. But they, they also made these similar measurements and determined that there was a possibility of something liquid below. So uh, the idea is it's below about 330 kilometers, uh, kilometers, and it's probably sandwiched between a couple of layers of ice, but there is a substantial body of water on Ganymede. Wow, which ice is, and water. Which is interesting don't stop there um there is another another moon of course around saturn called enceladus enchilada if you like (laughs) i Um, was thinking that it's hard now um (laughs) this particular moon is not one of the biggest ones in the solar system in fact it's quite small which um tends to mean it's usually a rocky you know hard place bigger Um, than ours or small how much is ours oh ours is big big ours is big so um, so basically, you know, one-sixth of the size of the Earth, so it's big. But um, Enceladus um, essentially seems to have these hydrothermal vents. Now, you think back to where we find extraordinary amounts of life on life. Earth around these hydrothermal vents deep under the ocean where you might think of those little cracks in the Earth's crust where there's heat and, and lots of nutrients, and associated with that you get all this incredible life. And Enceladus, believe it or not, is showing signs of having these hydro- hydrothermal vents. 
and the Cassini Orbiter. Remember that old bus that's been flying around up there for quite a while now? Dude? <laughs> I mean, it's about the size of a bus, literally. Um, this this incredible craft that's sent back so inf- so much information on Saturn um, has recently done a flyby on on Enceladus and found all this stuff. Now, if you're wondering how big this moon was, um, you may have if you read this news story at all. There's always the same reference, Doctor A. You guys will appreciate this size of Texas. And I'm like, how big is Texas? I don't know how big yeah. Texas is. That's a good point. So I looked it up. WA? Yeah, actually, I looked it up. Uh, and uh, so it's about three times the size of Victoria. It's uh, a bit smaller than New South Wales, but it's pretty much bang on the size of Queensland. So oh, if you're I'll wondering listen. how big this moon is, it's about the size it's of like, Queensland. It's like... Which is odd, because culturally I've made analogies in my mind between Texas and Queensland. Um, <laughs> I yeah. why. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, yeah, it's one of those things that's like Pi Day. It only applies to the US. Yes, we might go to, into that later. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So if you if you've been onto that one, folks, the um, the way in which you write um, a US date with the uh, month first and the day second, um, and uh, the certain time earlier today, I believe, ripped out pi to ten yeah. decimal places. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, for those math boffins over there, it will only happen once. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, there you go. Um, look, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will be back in a moment. We have a, a great guest on today. Um, Emily Petroff is from Swinburne University and is a user of one of those great facilities up in Parks uh-huh. and will be talking to us all about the sorts of astronomy stuff she is doing. Three, triple, And we are joined in the studio now by Dr. Emily Petroff from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University. Welcome, Emily. How are you? Good, thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you work on uh, the dish. I do. As people call it. Um, I have to say, when, the, I, when I was at high school, I think I was about uh, 17, we went on this road trip to Queensland. Thank God we flew back. Um, it was like it was a nightmare, but there was this midpoint between Melbourne and Great Keppel Island which I loved, which was the Parkes Observatory. Uh, this is still one of the, the great telescopes of the world, isn't it? Absolutely. It's uh, it's one of Australia's world-class facilities, one of the biggest telescopes in Australia. Hmm. And in terms of, um, I mean, you hear about the one in Arecibo, New Mexico, and so forth. I mean, how does, how does our telescope stack up? I mean, it's a whopper. Yeah, absolutely. So the telescope at Arecibo is the largest radio telescope in the world, and it's part of a class of telescopes called the 100-meter class telescope. Mm-hmm. So these are radio telescopes that are 100 meters in diameter or greater. Parkes radio telescope is 64 meters in diameter, but it is still definitely considered one of the highest highest power radio telescopes around. And certainly in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a huge difference. So so what what's in the well, I guess we can get to this, but I want to know what's in the southern hemisphere sky that, you know, the northern hemisphere buggers can't can't get their hands <laughs> on. But in terms of um let's talk a bit about radio astronomy first, because most people will be aware of how normal optical signals work in terms of normal astronomy, but what's the difference with radio astronomy? Yeah, so with radio astronomy we're still using light but we're not using the visible light that we can see with our eyes. So we're using the light that's at a lower wavelength or a longer wavelength. So the light we see with our eyes is about the wavelength or the, the length of a single up and down oscillation of the, of the light is about a nanometer or 100 nanometers. With radio telescopes, we're picking up things that have wavelengths of about 20 centimeters. So we're really, really past the, the type of 
light that we can see with our eyes. Mm. So we need these big dishes to pick it up. So we don't actually put our eye to the telescope like we would with an optical telescope. And even today, they don't use their eyes. They Mm. use fancy cameras. Um, But for radio telescopes, what we're really picking up is we're doing a lot of signal processing. So it's similar to how you pick up radio stations. um, But we're looking for much more uh, sensitive and and uh, distant signals with these telescopes. And, and what about things like cloud cover and so forth? Do you guys care about that? Not at all. So, wow. so what what is the um, the equivalent of uh, you know light pollution and so forth for radio astronomy? Yeah. So the nice thing about radio astronomy is that uh, at least at parks we can observe twenty four hours a day. The big killers for us are things like high wind because mm-hmm. the dish effectively acts like a giant sail. Right. Oh. Uh, so that's a very dangerous condition to be observing in. And um, the other killer is lightning because lightning produces radio pulses actually. So our telescope basically gets saturated by nearby lightning. Right. And in terms of um, uh, the, the sort of work, I mean, I want to get onto these brief radio pulses because this is amazing stuff. But in terms of the sort of work that you hear a lot about uh, ground-based telescopes doing, so things like you know local, our, our local planetary system, so measurements on um, other planets and so forth. Do, do is there radio interest in those objects as well, or is it mainly distant stuff? It is mainly distant stuff, but there are objects in our solar system that are interested, are interesting for radio astronomy. So the sun itself gives off mm-hmm. uh, radio bursts, and we study the radio bursts that come from solar flares. And also Jupiter is actually radio loud. So even with a, uh, a, a small uh, backyard antenna, you can, you can pick up Jupiter because it, it's, uh, the, the two rings around, around the center of Jupiter are extremely radio loud. And we're not exactly sure why. But, uh, you, I mean, J- Jupiter does have a lot of interest for radio astronomers. That's cool. I've got an 8-inch optical telescope. I'm going to ditch it and build a little radio radio telescope in the backyard. That sounds cool. Now, let's get on to your main area of work, which is fast radio bursts. And I'm not talking about what we're doing right now. This would be considered a very slow radio burst. <laughs> What's a fast radio burst? Yes, yeah, so we don't actually really know what they are. We we see them at telescopes like Parks, so we see them with radio telescopes. And as far as we know, they are these extremely bright, extremely short pulses that we only see once and that appear to come from about halfway across the universe. So by extremely short, I mean these things last about a millisecond, and that's about 100 times faster than the blink of a human eye, which mm-hmm. is pretty neat. And so we pick them up in our, in our radio data, and it looks like, unlike the radio pulses that we're used to seeing from things like pulsars in our own galaxy, these things are actually originating at cosmological distance. Right. And, and so they're, they're really short in terms of strength compared to something like a pulsar? They are very bright, so they are, they're on par with some of the brightest pulses that we see from pulsars in our own galaxy, but they've traveled much, much further, so we're thinking that their sources are something extremely energetic. And we have no idea what's causing these things. Still no. We only have about a handful of these sources that we know about so far, and they've mostly been found at parks. And so really the challenge at the moment is to try to find more of these things so we can understand where they're coming from. Hmm. Now, when you say they're about halfway across the universe, I mean, what other objects are in that sort of range, or is that where we get to the real sort of quasar-type stuff? And no, we're still definitely in the in the range of other normal astrophysical sources. Hmm. I think... Um, for for other types of things in that range, sort of like supernovae come from from that kind of distance. We see a lot of supernovae around around that redshift, and also things like gamma ray bursts. So this isn't an unusual thing to be seeing from from that sort of distance. But it is surprising that these are so bright and and in the radio. Hmm. Um, 
This all seems amazing. So you need a lot of resources for this. You mentioned supercomputing. When does computing become supercomputing, and what kind of resources do you need to analyze this data? Yeah, we need incredible amounts of supercomputing power because at parks, at least, the type of data rates that we're talking about is when we're looking for these bursts, we're taking about three gigabytes of data per minute. So that's about the equivalent of an HD movie per minute for about 1,000 hours every year that we're trying Mm. to record. And... And that's an enormous amount of data. That data rate is very high. So to be able to process that, especially to try to do the work that I do where we try to find these bursts in real time, you need uh, very rich computational resources. So you need things like uh, GPUs, which are graphics processing mm-hmm. units that are frequently used in, in gaming cards but are also extremely computationally efficient. So so we have our own little kind of cluster that we've built at Parks that, that crunches through this data in real time. But then we bring it back down to Swinburne and we, we use the, the full power of our mm. supercomputer to look mm. through the data in detail. Now, I've got a question. This might be a chicken and egg question. I realize that. But these so these things are a long way away and they only occur for a very short space of time. How the devil do you point the dish in the right direction hmm. to pick one up? Because, uh, I mean, the dish can only look at a, a relatively small amount of sky at any given time, I assume. And so are you just pointing it, you know, dare I say, randomly and hoping over a time? I mean, how, how do you find these things? Yeah, so it is a real needle in the haystack kind of problem because not only you really need to be pointing at the right place at exactly the right time. You know, if you were only a millisecond later, you would have missed it. So this does become a real challenge because we don't understand well where they're coming from. Once we understand that, we might be able to point more efficiently. But at the moment, it just comes down to trying to look at the whole sky and survey it, and and hopefully one of these will pop up in a place that we're looking. So it is a little bit of a challenge at the moment. Mm. So if you can only see a small amount of the sky at one given time and you have to be at just the right time and just the right place, does that actually mean they're a low occurrence? Because your observation window's almost the small part of it. Does that mean there's actually could be a reasonably high occurrence of these and you just happen to be catching a handful of them? Absolutely. So that's what we think. Just based on the number that we have so far, um, we only have about, you know, between about a dozen of these sources. So just based on that number and how much time we've spent on sky, we think these happen quite a lot. So somewhere between five and 10,000 of these bursts happening over the whole sky every day. So that's that's an incredible amount, but wow. we just need to be pointing at the right place. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Now, uh, Emily, we're going to keep you in the studio because uh, one of our other guests, I think, is in, in the Grand Prix and hasn't made it in. <laughs> um, so we've got some extra time. But we're going to take a short break and uh, get you some water and, uh, you know, Dr. Jeffy likes to go to the bathroom regularly and play some music when we'll be back in just a moment. So, folks, uh, hang in there. We're going to talk to Emily Petrov a bit more about uh, what's going on up there at the Parks Observatory. Three. Triple. And uh, we have uh, still in the studio Emily Petrov from Swinburne University, and we're talking about the radio uh, work done up at Parks Observatory and and these fast radio bursts that uh, Emily's been finding. Now, Emily, you must have some kind of best guess as to what these are. Dr. Cromer earlier suggested aliens. (laughs) Is there a scientific response? (laughs) Um, Probably not aliens, so sorry to disappoint on that score. Um, But yeah, we have a few different guesses for what these things might be. As I said before, they have to be something extremely energetic to be able to reach us from so far away and still Mm. be so bright. So we're thinking that it has to be something either uh, 
like a flare of some kind or some type of cataclysmic event where you might have, for example, two neutron stars in another galaxy that collide with each other. And these stars are very dense and, and very compact. And that, that, collision produces some type of fast radio burst mm. other than that you might get something like a one of the best guesses at the moment is something called a hypermassive neutron star so this is a neutron star that was born just a little bit too big and it actually shouldn't be a neutron star because it's too big to be a neutron star it should be a black hole instead but it's spinning so quickly that in its re- reference frame, it doesn't know it's too massive to be a neutron star. And so as it spins down, it suddenly realizes this and collapses into a black hole. And the idea would be that this collapse would be what produces this fast radio burst. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a neat theory, because then we would actually be seeing the birth of a black hole in another galaxy. Wow. I love the fact that uh, earlier on you described part of the noise problem for parks being lightning. And it's kind of like what, what you're seeing here, in a way, in, a, in you know the far distant range of the universe, these these kind of things that are giving off these pulses very short pulses Uh, uh, when you look at all of these and as you said there's quite a few now that have been identified are all the pulse lengths about the same or are they varying they do change a bit but they are all on the order of about a millisecond so between one millisecond and five milliseconds is a typical duration for that pulse um but but yeah, they do. They do seem to cluster around around that kind of duration. Very very short. I find it hard to get my head around the idea of the destruction of a neutron star happening in five milliseconds. Is that, is that yeah, it's it's actually um, some of these things that we're dealing with very extreme physics in these yeah. types of cases because these are the most extreme objects in the universe next to black holes, and so um, it's not unexpected that they would produce something so incredibly violent on these short timescales. Oh, yeah. Uh, it also goes to the naive mind that's not a physicist to try to start to grapple with the vastness of what you mean by universe. Because we're talking about formation of a black holes. But before the break, we were saying there could be five, ten thousand of these. Hmm. You know, and black holes are only a small percentage of objects that exist compared to other objects in, in the universe. And you go, oh, wait, a small percentage, a really tiny percentage is easily five or ten thousand of an object that we can observe from where we're looking. Yeah, absolutely, because we're not just looking at them in one specific galaxy. We're looking across all of the galaxies in the universe. So even if they only happen once per galaxy every 100 years, every 1,000 years, we're still going to see a ton of these things over the whole sky every day just because you know, there's billions of galaxies out there. Oh, I'm starting to get a slight headache. I know, so <laughs> It's mind-expanding. It's amazing stuff. <laughs> now, um, just in, in terms of the, um, the dish itself and, and the operation, give us, give us an idea of what it's like up there actually running this facility because this is a very large object that has to be pointed in very specific directions and as you say with wind and and so forth being a problem i assume there's a degree of accuracy that has to be met there what's it like and how do you go about you know orientating this this large piece of infrastructure yeah absolutely it's a very precise instrument and it has to be for the work that we do because we need it to be able to focus on a particular patch of sky and to be able to maintain that focus so it's very well balanced and it's very very intelligently constructed Um, and it's actually the dish was built in, I believe, 1961. So it's you know it celebrated its 50 year anniversary mm. in 2011, and it's still going strong. It's it's a very powerful telescope, and and it it you know it requires constant maintenance and uh, upkeep. But um, the staff there, you know, take very good care of it and, and enable us to do the astronomy that we do. Mm. Now, um, we, we've been sending a lot of messages to Christopher Pine this morning. Would you like a larger dish? <laughs> 
a larger dish would be great, but I think we're we're moving into the era of of interferometry. So what that oh. me, what that means is using multiple smaller dishes to look at the same patch of sky and kind of use oh. those dishes together to get a very clear picture. So these are these things they call very large arrays and yeah, absolutely. and very very large arrays. Yeah, yeah. So so one is currently being built in WA called ASCAP, the Australia Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, mm. and that's going to be Australia's most powerful telescope once it's finally complete. I'm really excited to see that happen. Now, now presumably, we, we often hear about the new James Webb telescope going up, an orbital telescope to replace Hubble, but there's no real reason to put a, a radio telescope in space, is there? Is that, is, that, um, is that right? Is there no advantage there? It actually becomes more difficult to put a radio telescope in space because uh, we require these very big dishes, and or if we don't have big dishes, we require lots of smaller dishes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Radio light actually gets through the atmosphere fairly unchanged. So the advantage of putting optical and infrared telescopes in space is so that you don't have to deal with the messiness of the atmosphere. But we don't really have to deal with that in radio astronomy, so there's no big advantage to going to space. Mm. Now, Emily, you've got some uh, big stuff happening this week as part of your work there at Swinburne. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to be on the feed on SBS2 this this week. So um, on Wednesday night, I'll be... I'll be on the feed, and I'm really excited for it. It's all about parks, which is what I love, so it's, it's going to be a fun time. Yeah. Have they got footage of you walking across the dish? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be in all of those yeah. shows. There's always footage of the person walking across yeah, the absolutely. dish. Yeah, absolutely. I was so yeah. excited because I haven't actually been back in a while because right. most of our operations are remote these days. So it was, it was a really great experience to be back up there and you know get to walk on the dish again. Yeah, fabulous. Now, in terms of just uh, finally identifying these um, these short radio bursts, at, at what point do you sort of have to hand over some of this to, to other installations around the world or are you already doing that because presumably i mean you guys can only access the dish's time for a, a portion i mean there is a whole lot of research programs going on there so how, how do you go about maintaining this um this research work or do you have to hand it off to to people at different sites around the world yeah we're very fortunate that our projects have been given a lot of time at parks mm-hmm. so so parks is actually leading the leading the charge on finding these bursts uh, and it's basically due to the time that we've been given but we we really like to work with other telescopes around the world, mostly because once we find a burst at Parks, and we have found one, so I found one in real time last year. Once we find one in real time, we would like to alert other telescopes. So in the end, when we found, found one in real time last year, we got 12 other telescopes around the world to point at that same patch of sky and basically just kind of see what we see and try to figure out if we can pinpoint where right. these things are coming from. Yeah, Look, it's fabulous work, and it's so interesting that so much of this new astronomy is being done here in Australia makes us proud and uh, having gone and seen the dish and so forth it is a spectacular facility so folks if you're in the if you're in the region of parks which is not that far from canberra um or you know not that far from here um (laughs) it is worth having a look at because it is truly one of the great um experiments of the world and it will continue to do amazing work even after the square kilometer array is is built i'm sure there's a lot that still will go on at parks emily petroff thanks so much for coming in today and um good luck on wednesday although i suspect the horse has already bolted on that one because you've already filmed it but i hope (laughs) i hope it goes well and people enjoy watching it on sbs great thank you so much emily petroff is from the center for astrophysics and supercomputing at swinburne university and a user of one of those amazing facilities that this country has in the past supported that are of scientific value we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in just a few moments to talk more about science dr ray has prepared something special for us three triple 
Dr. Ray has been, he, you know, we had a, a guest not come in today, folks. We're not sure why. Maybe a Grand Prix problem or, or whatever. But I, I frantically looked at Dr. Ray and said, you know, hey, can you prepare an entire story for us in about three minutes? And he has done it. And, and I have. And thank you for the compliment. But to take away from it, this was actually just really exciting news that um, I'd already looked at and went, wow, this is pretty cool. This is, this is a really big jump forward in chemistry. And I thought, oh, this would be fun to talk about. So small molecules that are made out of chemists and biochemists and synthetic chemistry. You think small molecules, you go, wait, aren't all molecules small? I mean, we can't see them with our naked eye. But I'm talking about small molecules in the sense of not very high molecular weights. Enough, they're complicated, but they don't have, and they might have, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 atoms, but not necessarily polymers. And when I talk about small molecule, you go, what? And I can say it's very simply to you, drugs. Okay. Pharmaceuticals antifungal agents, uh, therapeutics that aren't proteins but can somehow, when we add them to our body, do some of the function of a protein to help with a variety of different disease states. These things are made, and every time a drug is made and screened and then it, it solves a disease or it helps treat a symptom, it's really treated as a breakthrough. And that process is really tough. Because the molecules themselves have a bunch of different types of atoms on them and very complex structures. And as synthetic chemists are really good at making a molecule from a very methodological way, they go, oh, well, we know how to make that. There's a bunch of different ways. We'll try this way. And they come up with making these small molecules. And they might have a very important molecule or a very important drug. And it only took them 100 steps to make. Mm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and so there's a real real challenge in there about doing this quickly going from having the focus is always on making the molecule as opposed to understanding function. Right. And so uh, a researcher named Martin Burke at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in the chemistry department has realized what I think is about a 10 or 10 or 15-year vision where he's developed an approach in both chemistry and automation to make complex small molecules in a building block style approach. Now, he was inspired from biology because... There are already, this occurs if you want to make DNA for a lab or a protein, there's DNA synthesizers. Now, they only have four sets of uh, oligonucleotides, A, G, D, and I forgot the other one, but Dr. Cromo knows it. Uh, A, G, C, T. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Reasons I'm not a biologist. Um, But uh, so DNA, proteins are an example where a lot of their complexity comes from the peptides that you can actually buy as standard industrial precursors, and then it's some assembly required. And, and, And so that... Ability to do building block chemistry has already been well adopted in in, in biological areas, but in synthetic chemistry, because I think I, I personally believe it's probably there's so many different ways to achieve the same molecule. the The old adage goes, if you're not a cat person, there's more than one way to skin a cat, um, and, and and so that's the same idea. And it, it, so there's so many different ways. So what they developed was using some really great pieces of chemistry, like getting two carbon bonds to build to link together without futzing with or affecting any of the other complex chemistry. Wow. Now this was developed by in, from Japan. It's called by Akira Suzuki. It's called Suzuki chemistry. But taking that together with making complex molecules have regularized building blocks. You could almost think of it as a Lego, Hmm. where they have a boronic acid on one side and a halogen on the other, and these things stick together as Legos. And on top of that, they figured out, wait, you want 
very two specific Lego pieces to stick together, so they figured out how to put a capping agent, or effectively a smooth piece, on top of one end of the Lego so it only reacts on one side. And, and, and they did this in a very systematic fashion. And then they looked at how, D, how DNA is made and, and proteins, and they went, we need it to stick to a surface so we can have a very clean wash and rinse cycle to put our next chemical in. And they figured a way out to do that as well, developing what they called their capping agent, MIDA. And so they can actually in a very automated process. So they literally built something they call the machine. They, they actually call it that, where it's, it's a set of, of rinsing and fluid and mixing and uh, chemical loading reagents where they can actually set up automated chemistry recipes to do very complex chemistry. And their guess is about 70 to 75% of the small molecules that are made today can be made this way. And, and the power is you can tweak things without having to reinvent the synthesis. And they have a great example for an antifungal um, drug, AMF-B, where it always thought it created pores in the fungus and uh, channels, and that's what killed it. Well, they actually changed the AMF-B ever so slightly, so it doesn't make pores, but it still kills the fungus. And it's actually because the way funguses are killed is actually a slightly different mechanism. You, you can imagine, I mean, most people hearing this would think, isn't that the way it was always done? I mean, when you describe it, it sounds so simple and appropriate to to put these molecules together in this way, in these components, you know, and, and yet Yet not, and I think it, it, it really comes back to just how little has been understood about how some of this works, and, and this whole area of you know synthetic biology and, and systems biology that's coming around now, where people are using you know vast computer calculations to try and work out what's actually you know understanding it as well as just building it. Well, in, in synthetic chemistry, has amazing degrees of freedom. So there's always a mm. bunch of different ways to arrive to that outcome. To say no, let's standardize our complex building blocks with these two tags on the end, and so we can do it a very automated, sequential way, is probably, it's been very counter to chemistry over how it's evolved, mm-hmm. whereas DNA and biology, when they're making proteins and DNA, went, we need to progress our science quickly. Yep. We need to find automation, and there wasn't a marrying to a technique, it was a marrying to a goal. Yeah. And, and we're just starting to see that in chemistry. Mm, interesting stuff. Now, uh, thank you, Dr. Ray. We're, uh, we've got some other things that we need to chat about quickly. Uh, Dr. Cromo, an event uh, you want to mention? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that science, we found out today, science is awesome, awesome scale. We've gone from <laughs> universes, galaxies, yes. down to atoms. It's just everything, it's, and it's everywhere. Briefly, I also want to share um, an RIP to Terry for Terry Pratchett, for those of yes. a large proportion of our audience that would have read him, um, all about science and all about the absurdities of the political systems. Uh, if mm. you haven't read him, go read. Finally, um, if you're a twin, anywhere out there, if you're a twin, adult or child, the Twins Festival is held every three years, and it's held next week in Melbourne at Coalfield Racecourse. Just put in, just Google Twins Festival, and you will find it. It's an amazing, I went to the last mm. one, and it's just amazing. Sounds fantastic. Two of everything. Now, next time we see you, we're going to have to talk about your trip to Vancouver yeah. and, and what you got up to. Um, I'd like to chuck a big shout-out to a lot of the surgeons out there who I know personally, um, who are not the ones, uh, the ones I know, who are causing these problems that we've seen in the paper. So there's been there's been a massive amount of news about this over the last week and some of this inappropriate behaviour, and we have to stamp that out wherever it exists. But please, folks, keep in mind there are a lot of very talented surgeons out there that 
that do not behave this way and that are very effective at their jobs and very, very thoughtful towards their junior female colleagues. So um, those of you who uh, I know uh, who may be listening, a big shout out to you guys because I'm sure you're getting a lot of stick over this as well when it is not you. Now, uh, we're going to hand over in a second to Matt Stedman and Cam for Eat It. Matt Stedman and I are Fitbit friends. Do you know what that means? No idea. That little rubber thing that you... Yeah, count our steps. And, uh, you know, just a few moments ago, Mr. Matt Stedman sent me a, a work a work week challenge. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I think it means he's um, deciding to do a few extra steps this week and wants to give me a go. Now, Catherine Granger, who was on this show, uh, tried to outstep me last week, and, well, she got so sick as a result that she couldn't <laughs> come in today. So, uh, anyway, uh, these things are great to get you moving. So, <laughs> I think that... I'm not sure if I'm going to get one of these Apple watches but because um, I'm worried that I'll have to replace it every three months with a new one or upgrade it or charge it every five minutes. Who knows? You know, <laughs> standard sort of stuff. Whereas I like my watch that I you know, haven't changed in 12 years and I think there's one new battery. <laughs> That's how they're supposed to work. Anyway, folks, we're going to leave you uh, there for now. Uh, after another beautiful week in science it's been a great week although harsh in the political scene so if you are out there at all and you have the chance to support science in any way shape or form by public commentary please do it until next week remember science is everywhere this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au